Welcome to a special mini-series on Sacred City Vision Drip. We've been talking a lot about generational faithfulness as of late, and in this vein, we put together a parenting conference last weekend. And so you're about to hear audio from that conference. You'll hear from Pastor Rob, who gives us a 30,000-foot overview, theological overview of, of covenantal succession. I'll, I'll teach on the next series about standing on the promises, and then Pastor Justin will lead us into some really practical things about culture in the home and discipline. I hope you enjoy this. Rob Spikestra. I am the pastor of discipleship at Sacred City in Davenport. Um, yeah, so it's uh, my privilege to begin us uh, this evening. Uh, what will become not only this evening, but then tomorrow morning, two more sessions tomorrow morning, uh, which tonight will kind of start a foundation of uh, what God has given to us in terms of our, um, really our hope in terms of the next generation, next generation and generations thereafter. And so uh, Hope this will be an encouraging time tonight for you. We're going to going to walk us through a bit. I'll give you some time to ask some questions, maybe uh, maybe about a third way in, and then uh, at the end we'll also have some time for questions and, and answers. So uh, so welcome. If you're not familiar, this is Sacred City, and uh, we are about making disciples, planting churches, and renewing the cities. This is what God has called us to as a church. And so if you are a guest with us, we are great to have. Great to have you here as well, so thank you for coming tonight, and believe that not only tonight, but tomorrow uh, morning uh, will be very profitable for what God wants to be doing in your life and in your anticipation of what God is going to be doing through you uh, to in, in your children and in your grandchildren and generations thereafter, and so... Uh, I uh, look forward to what you what we learned what we learned tonight. So tonight uh, I'm going to kind of share a little bit of my own story uh, as I'm kind of walking through here in terms of the uh, foundations that we have with regards to God's word. And I'm going to start. Uh, let me start with some scripture. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into well, yeah, scripture a little bit on what you got in your your outline there, and then maybe we'll pray uh, at that point, and then ask God for His blessing. So um, I, I want to begin with these few passages of scripture, and primarily I'm looking in the Book of Psalms, although we. Could go all over uh, scripture to see what God's expectations are or what his hopefulness is in terms of what he wants to do in our children and our children's children's lives uh, through us as uh, parents, uh, grandparents, others who are ministering into uh, those who have families. And so Psalm 71, verse 18, as an example, says this. I'm going to actually give you verse 17 to get context here. He says, Oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to an old age and gray hairs, and so we now we know the psalmist is writing as he's older, as he's reflecting back on his own life, God has been teaching him, and so we now can kind of get an idea of where he got, how he got taught. So even to an old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Uh, so there was an anticipation that he was going to, I, let me live long enough to be able to tell the next generation 
of the good things that you have, uh, you have given, uh, given to us. Okay, Psalm 71, 18. Psalm 78, verses 5 through 7. Psalm, 80, uh, Psalm 78, 5 through 7. Um, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to do this, to teach to their, to their children that the next generation might know them, that is, the laws, the testimonies, might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God and keep his commandments." Uh, so uh, not only your children, but the ch- their children, uh, this is what the anticipation is that God says that we are to be doing, and that is t- teaching them uh, to set their hope on God, uh, the one who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is ruling right now in the universe and ruling within our own lives. There's where our hope is. Psalm 79, verse 13. Psalm 79, 13. So one more psalm over. Um, we are, we your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever from, look at this, from generation to generation we will recount your praise. So there's this generational thinking that God has with regards to how he is going to, uh, his name is going to be proclaimed. One last one, Psalm 145, uh, verse 4, Psalm 145, verse 4, um, Similar, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. So this is what God has intended to do. He's intended to use one generation to the next generation to the next generation to be proclaiming uh, the wonderful things that God has done for us, his wondrous works uh, that he has given to us, the might, his mighty acts. So I, I want to begin with scripture, uh, and, and I, of course, only focused on the Psalms. We go elsewhere to, to understand that scripture seems to be this, and that it lays out a positive view of parenting and the fate of our children, a, a positive uh, view of the fate of our children and their children, so our grandchildren. So, so we are here not just for our children, we're here for our grandchildren. So many of you don't don't think of the, in those terms. You probably haven't thought about, am I going to have grandchildren one, one day? Yeah, God is calling you to here today to be thinking about your grandchildren, and we can even go farther than that. Now, that's, that's important for us to start this way because this is contrary, I think, in what we are hearing within our evangelical world. And so I gave you some stats there on your handouts. And so we're hearing stats like this. Two studies conducted by both the Barna Group and US, USA Today found that nearly 75% of Christian young people fall away from the faith and leave the church after high school. Or the 2016 study by the PRRI, Public Religion Research Institute, which stated most Americans who leave their childhood religious identity to become unaffiliated generally do so before they reach their 18th birthday, citing that 62% abandon their childhood religion. And they go on to state that an additional 28% leave by 29. So in other words, in their study, 90% abandon their childhood religion by 29. Now, now we hear those stats, and an assumption, I would call this a fatalistic assumption, creeps into the church. Or a new word I've heard, that we would call it, um, we become black-pilled. Anybody else know what black-pilled is besides me? 
All right, I'm cool, and you, the rest of you don't know. That's cool. All right, so, so, so it comes off the matrix, and you got the, you got the blue pill, and you got the red pill, and I think this is the red pill, that if you really want to know the reality of things, you take the red pill. If you have the blue pill, you just don't really want to care. I don't want to know. Now, black pill, it comes out of that, and black pill is this idea of just this fatalism. It's a belief that this is just the way it's going to be, that all children go through some kind of wild period of apostasy. This is the black pill that now we're beginning to re- be received within the church. But this is not scripture. This is not biblical, this black pill. Um, So we need to hear what Scripture has to say for us um, in order to know what God intends for us. Now, with this fatalistic kind of uh, look and and these stats that we have here, there's a way that we might want to respond, and that is we might want to respond in order to kind of calm our parental fears, is that we test the biblical truth of the perseverance of the saints into an application of just trying to get our children to pray a sinner's prayer as if once they pray that prayer, we can just kind of sit back happy that we've done our job as parents. That's the twist that we as evangelicals are tempted when we hear this fatalistic kind of view of all, all children are going to apostatize. So, you know, let's just get them to say a, a prayer of salvation, and then we can just sit back and, you know, hope things go well for them thereafter. That's, um, that's what's in the church today. But whatever stat you want to quote, whether that's 75% by the Barnard Group or the 90% by the PRRI of children apostatizing, that is leaving the church, those stats are fruits that come off a bad tree. That's all that is. It is a tree that has rejected how God relates to humanity. It's a tree that has no concept of the confidence that covenant succession brings to the people of God. And so what I want to do at the beginning here is I want to talk about this bad tree that we have kind of found ourselves in, and I want us to see then the good tree that Scripture has for us in order for us as a people will know that we can go out with the fruit of the good tree that has been given to us through the authority of the Word of God so that we as parents be confident like God is confident, and that is that your children and your grandchildren are going to be part of the kingdom of God. And this is where we want to go, all right? So that's what we're going to do. So let's pray and ask God uh, to help us. So, Father, we we do pray for help. Uh, We hear stats. We hear people expressing within the church that somehow we can expect all of our children to go through some kind of wild apostatizing times. Uh, and, And so, Father, we hear that. We swim in it. We begin to believe it. We begin to become hopeless. And so, Father, living with that, we would pray that you would clear our minds again, that you would clean our heads out, that you would give our hearts a new, a greater love, a new love, a greater love for your plan for us as parents, grandparents, for us as your body, for, your, for our children, that our hope would not be in ourselves, our hope would not be in what we see around us in terms of the church, but Father, our hope would be in your word and in your Holy Spirit working in our lives uh, the truth of your word so that we would be parents who are confident uh, 
like you're confident of what you're going to do through, through us and through our children, grandchildren. So thank, thank you, Father. Pray for your blessing on our time. Pray for your blessing on our discussion as we ask questions and try to answer. Uh, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to um, have hope. Um, we pray. We thank you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Okay, so where I want to go the rest of this evening is I'm going to, first of all, we're going to start with the theological and kind of a historical context that we find ourselves in or that you find yourselves in, whether you realize it or not. And then I, what I want to do is I want to unveil this bad tree uh, from which we are getting this bad fruit, and then I want to show the good tree of Scripture and then provide a definition of, of covenant succession for you. Um, and from there, out of that historical theological context, then we're going to get into some, consider some of the covenant succession tools of which then Sam and Justin tomorrow will, eat, will have more to say in terms of some of these tools, okay? So let's start, first of all, with this kind of theological and historical context. Now, the majority of us, if you grew up in the church or if you came to faith in the church uh, somewhere else besides maybe uh, Sacred City, and then uh, uh, you were shaped, whether you realized it or not, you were shaped by a particular view, you were shaped by a particular uh, view of how God relates to humanity. And if you didn't grow up in the church and you came to faith maybe in Sacred City uh, until recently, you too were formed somewhat of a view that is very much uh, in line with this theological view that most of us didn't even know was being pressed in upon our lives and that, our, that define uh, the practices that we have been part of within, within the church. And, we, and none of us... We, we didn't even know. I didn't know it. Um, so th this view is called dispensationalism. And um, what I've done here is, uh, let, me, let me just show you. Uh, it, it, by the way, it, it, dispensationalism, um, it, it's, it's formed, it, it's, it's theologically, it's, it's, it's that which is both in academia, but it has formed not only them, but it comes all the way down to us uh, in our everyday man theology. And so let me just give you some characteristics of it and then I'll try to kind of work that out a little bit. Here's the characteristics. Its emphasis, dispensationalism, its emphasis is on the spiritual and sees the material or physical as secondary. On the spiritual. And then it focuses in on the individual. It focuses in on the individual. And it divides God's story into multiple eras, into multiple eras, and finds a lot more discontinuity over time versus continuity. So discontinuity over time versus continuity. And I'm going to show you why this is important in just a, in just a minute here in terms of our everyday uh, life. So what dispensationalism is trying to do and what we are as everyday theologians, so you're a theologian, whether you realize it or not, you are a theologian because you are thinking about just on an everyday basis, uh, who is God and how do I relate to God? Why do we have such problems in our world? How can we fix those problems? Those kind of things. And if you kind of get into scripture, you're also a theologian in that you're kind of going, what's this Old Testament thing and how does this Old Testament relate to the New Testament? And so dispensationalism is, is trying to explain that 
that, it's trying to answer that question, and that is that how does the old relate to the new, uh, the New Testament? Uh, they recognizing that all of Scripture is inerrant and thus authoritative, infallible, and thus authoritative to our lives. And so dispensationalists would say that God relates to humanity in different ways throughout human history. And there are a number of different dispensations, which is why we get the name dispensationalism, in which God interacts with humanity in these different ways. Or simply, just simply put, a dispensationalist sees a lot of discontinuity in Scripture. And that while all of Scripture is inerrant and infallible and thus authoritative, the authority of certain Scriptures is greater in different dispensations. Thus, there's a strong emphasis of the New Testament over the Old Testament in dispensationalist circles. And this was the context I was raised in, and you were raised in. Um, I went to seminary that taught dispensationalism. And I remember in my systematic theology class, we were talking about dispensationalism and what we're going to talk about in just a minute here, which is covenant uh, theology. Uh, I thought, well, whatever, you know, it doesn't really matter. These are things that, you know, kind of high up there, academia kind of people are talking about. Okay, I'll get the understanding. But it doesn't really matter because I'm going to be a pastor. And I'm just going to, be, I'm going to be working out very practical things in the lives of, of individuals. And so I didn't think it really mattered that much. It wasn't going to affect the way I was going to do my day-to-day living personally or the way I was going to pastor. I was wrong. I'll show you why in just a minute here. It does mean something for us. So going, now go back to the characteristics. Because according to dispensationalism, God's story is divided into multiple eras, and he relates to humans differently in those dispensations, in this dispensation that we find ourselves, he relates not primarily through the family. In this dispensation, in the dispensation that you live in, he relates through individuals, primarily through individuals. That's the understanding. So the epistles are extremely important within dispensationalism, and thus the emphasis is on the individual. So Romans 10, 9 through 13 is, is, a, is key. Um, it, it, the individual is crucial for the kingdom to press out. For God's kingdom. So we know that God's kingdom, God says, it's going to press out, it's going to move out, and the way we're going to do this is through individuals, getting individuals saved. So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jews and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we would all say, amen, right? Amen. Yes, this is true. Because it comes from God's word, scripture. This is true. So, with the dispensationalists, the importance is, since God is working to the individual, is getting the individual to say a prayer that they believe in Jesus as their Savior. Now we'd say, yeah, okay, that's, I'm for that. I hope you're for that, right? Hope so. 
The emphasis, though, back to the characteristics, is on that spiritual aspect of the individual because there's a sense that there is going to be a future dispensation that we're not in, which is going to be material and physical. And so that'll become important later, but right now what's most important is the spiritual. So much so that some would claim that Jesus can be your savior Pray the prayer, but he doesn't have to be Lord. He doesn't have to actually be Lord of your life. In other words, you don't have to have fruit. You can have a life that is no different than the rest of the world. So this theology is uniquely an American theology. And this is where I kind of historically I want us to get a, get a sense of it. It, it, it fits. So if you didn't, if you didn't grow up in the church, you would, this is good stuff right here. I mean, if you didn't grow up in the church and, you, and, and such and you came to faith later, this, this kind of theology fits the rugged individualism and the demand for independence and the you don't tell me how to live my life kind of attitude that we are kind of the kind of world that American culture we live in. And as we will see historically, it, it fits this kind of this uniquely American timeline. Okay, so this is... This is generally what we as evangelicals have kind of been part of, most of us, not everybody here, but probably the majority of us, that's the kind of, that's the kind of understanding we have of how God relates to humanity. God relates to humanity through individuals who we hope they'll just come to faith in Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, and, and that's it. That's, that's the end. That's how God's going to press out his kingdom. And I, th- I think all of you would say, seems pretty good. I mean... I agree with Romans 10, 9 through 13. All right, so let's, let's go this, now let's see the contrast. This is in contrast to covenantal theology. So covenantal theology, which is also answering the same question. How does God relate to humanity as revealed in Scripture? So, how does, so dispensationalism, that's, they're asking that same question. They're asking what's the relationship with the old and the new. Same with regards to uh, covenantal theology. How does God relate to humanity as revealed in Scripture? But rather than, in covenant theology, rather than finding discontinuity between the Old and the New Testaments, covenant theology is, finds, a, it finds its strength in its continuity, in the continuity. And the continuity is... In the covenants. That God has always related to humanity through a covenant relationship. And so again, we begin to think about covenants. What kind of covenants are we talking about? We're talking about what we call the covenant of creation or the covenant of works before in, in, the, in the garden. Then we have the covenant of grace, which then is covenant to Adam. And then we have a Noahic covenant. And then we have the Abrahamic covenant. And we, then we have the Mosaic covenant. Then we have the Davidic covenant. And then we have the uh, anticipation of the new covenant. And then we have the new covenant in the New Testament. And the covenants is that which shows us the continuity that God has in terms of how he relates to humanity and that Old Testament and New Testament can be understood as being continuous, not discontinuous or broken up uh, like dispensational have. So the book that I would recommend if you want to see kind of the glory of the covenants, this is the one we have out there. It's called The Christ of the Covenants by O. Palmer Robinson. Now, my story is one of which I just read this. I just read this. I don't know if Alex Tate's here, he is. Alex and Tate and I have been reading this together. 
I read this probably, finished probably three or four months ago. I'm still figuring this out, but God has been gracious to kind of walk me through to this point. Now, and let, let me, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more in just a minute of my story. So, well, I guess I can do it right now. So, my story from dispensationalism to covenant theology is that I could see all of what God was calling us to do as believers. I could, as I was reading scriptures, I was studying scriptures, I could see all these things, uh, the hands and feet and, and, and things that God was calling us to do, and I could see these all out here, but I couldn't figure out how do the, all these things relate together? How is it to the Old Testament and the New Testament? How do they relate together? Uh, and and what, what impact does that have in terms of my parenting, in the case we're talking about, or about my marriage, or by parenting or just the way that I do, do life itself. And so I, I saw things that God was calling, but I couldn't figure out what it is that's kind of keeping this all together. What is, what is kind of keeping this all to work together? And so then I, um, I read this, um, covenant, uh, the Christ of the Covenants, and I understood covenant theology, but I, this really, really helped to kind of solidify it for me. And so that's why I'm recommending it. And, and here's how I would like the covenants, uh, how I liken the covenants Palmer students, you will particularly appreciate this. The covenants is like the spinal cord. Is that right? Spinal cord? Morgan, is that right? Spinal cord? That's what you guys do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Close enough. It is, <laughs> it is like the spinal cord. So if you can get that, if you can get the covenants aligned right, then everything else seems to just function properly and well the hands and the feet and everything else outside of that. And so once I began to see how, oh, I see there's a continuity between the old and the new, it helped me then to begin to understand why I do the things that I do with my hands and my feet and my mouth and all those other parts of my body in terms of, in terms of my, my relationships and in terms of my ministry. And so that's... That helped me to understand how things do function properly through the covenants. And this, again, this is going to have importance, as you can tell, for, for parenting. So what is a covenant? What is a covenant? I don't have a, you can probably just write down space down there, but a covenant is a bond in blood. It's a bond in blood. It has um, ultimate, ultimate uh, life and death implications. A covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered, Sovereignly administered, God being the sovereign, ultimately we talk about the covenant, sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses. Attendant blessings and curses. And God has related to humanity through the covenants. From the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. So a covenant binds a people together but most importantly, it binds a people together with God. So in the new covenant, we are bound to God, the Father, through the blood of the Son, sovereignly administered through the Holy Spirit. And in this new relationship, there are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. So here are some of the characteristics of covenant theology. Its emphasis is on the whole man. Its emphasis is on the whole man. The spiritual and the physical, including the material around, world around us. Its focus is on the family as the normal means of the individual coming to faith in Christ. 
It focuses on the family as the normal means of the individual coming to faith in Christ. It views God's story with continuity. Continuity. C-O-N-T-I-N-U-I-T-Y. Continuity. That the tools for covenant succession are ancient and reliable. So it's this last point, the tools of covenant succession that are ancient reliable that brings us now to the kind of this historical context. See, the failure of dispensational tools is this. It is, it is, it's within the historical context that we can see the failure of dispensational tools and we can see the confidence that we can have of the covenantal succession tools. So dispensationalism came into its own during the middle 1800s. And it became popularized in America at the beginning of the 1900s through a man named Cyrus Schofield and his Schofield Study Bible. And then it took on an academic and more of a widely popular view in the middle of the 1900s. So in other words, as we look at dispensationalism, it is the new kid on the block. That is, it's contrary to how the church, historical, how the church, biblical, has understood how God relates to humanity. That is, through the covenants. But we, being this far down river, historically, are the ones who have been most pressed into this, what I would call a bad tree, which has given us faulty tools. See, this is, this is practically what it, what it, what it means. Um, the theological underpinnings that we looked at in terms of just those three characteristics, they do affect the way that we do church. The discontinuity that is the emphasis of dispensationalism, has created a culture of disconnection with the ancient markers of Scripture in terms of practice. So rather than uh, viewing ourselves as kind of coming downstream in terms of from the church, the modern evangelical church views itself as disconnected from the previous generations. So the primary question in regards to a... a um, dispensationalism in terms of practices, where we have to ask then the question, well, what works today? We become pragmatists in the way that we parents. What keeps the kids in the church? That's the question we have to then begin to ask if we're going to be a dispensationalist. Because what we are doing is we are beginning to, to disconnect ourselves from history, from the church itself, and say, well, I'm in this particular era. I'm not really connected to anything that's in the Old Testament, perhaps not even connected to some of the stuff in the New Testament called the Gospels. Not all dispensationalists think this. Uh, but certainly, I'm now downstream here. We need to figure out how do we reach our children. So what we did is, in this dispensational practical outworking, is we said, well, what we need to do is we need to... We need to Pull the kids away from their parents in the sense of those stodgy old parents and all the old ways that they do things, and we need to do things really cool and new. And so let's do, let's do it this way. Let's remove them from the church in terms of the corporate worship, and let's have their own little church. And we'll have their own music, and we'll have their own way of relating to the, to the world. And so there begins to become a separation. What do they like? How can we keep them in the building? And so then, well, well, we need to entertain them then. 
We need to give them what they like and want. What is it that appeals to them? Let's begin doing that. And we'll throw Bible in there. And all we really need to do in this framework, because this is the framework that most of, a lot of our pastors were, were receiving in terms of the evangelical world, is that we just need to get them to pray a prayer. We just need to get them to understand that Jesus is their Savior and that they would just pray that prayer. And once we've done that, we're good to go. Now, they may go off. That doesn't matter because they've prayed the prayer. But this is not what God intended. This is not the ancient markers that God has given to us through, through the covenant. So the confidence that we have of the covenantal tools comes out of this doctrine of covenant succession that God has intended from the very beginning to relate to humanity through covenants down to today through the covenant of the family, uh, through this, this uh, covenant succession. So here's a, here is the definition of covenant succession. And I, this is really important, and I forgot to put it on the outline. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the definition so that you know the working definition that we have here. So the doctrine of covenant succession presents the scriptural teaching that, here we go, the children of believers, the children of believers, that is covenant children, we'd also call them covenant children, so the children of believers, we can put in little parentheses, or I mean, is that parentheses? Yeah, parentheses, covenant children, are expected to succeed. Children of believers, covenant children, are expected to succeed in the faith of their parents. This is what scripture teaches that they're expected to succeed in the faith of their parents. Hope you have more room. And this is accomplished through divinely ordained, and this is accomplished through divinely ordained means of covenant nurture. Of covenant nurture. And this is accomplished through divinely ordained means of covenant nurture. So when we reject the way that God has intended to relate to humanity, called the covenants, and we begin to think, hey, maybe there's another way of doing it, we begin to, we begin to grow this tree, this tree that then produces bad fruit, and the bad fruit is, is then we have Barnett going out saying, what's happening to all the children? What we've done is we, have, we need to get back to the good tree because <laughs> God says the good tree has good fruit, which is why I started the whole thing with just, just the Psalms. I could go to a whole bunch of other scripture in terms of the rest of, the, uh, rest of scripture that says God expects certain things to happen with our children and our grandchildren, and that is that they will too be succeeding in faith with their parents and their grandparents, and we should expect that to happen and that the normal, the normal testimony that our children should be have is, I don't ever remember a day when I didn't know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That's just the way it is, because this is the way our family is. And this is the God that we are calling our God. He's the one who came and died on the cross for us to give us a way to have life. And so this is who I serve. I don't have any other testimony. 
Now we do have, of course, we do have God is pressing out his kingdom in such a way that individuals who are not in a covenant family are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But then now God is handing them over and saying, now now your job is as a covenant member is now to have this covenant family as well. And so they begin a new, whole new story. Uh, yeah, a whole new, whole new story um, in, their, in their life. So, so I'm calling the ordained means of covenant nurture covenant succession tools. So that's why we have on the second page there, covenant succession tools. And this is really just the practical outworking of our theology. This is the practical outworking of our theology. All right. I'm just going to press on. Yeah. All right, so covenant succession tools. Here we go. The first tool is to rely on, so then I put in their parentheses, faith, to rely on the ancient way, to rely on the ancient way revealed in Scripture, and that is covenant succession. So one of the tools is, one of the tools is, is faith in the ancient way. Um, the modern mind, we always, we, we, we're always, well, we can always do it better. That's what our modern mind says. But no, God says no. Place faith in the ancient markers, the ancient way that God has called us to raise our children. You place faith in those, in, in, in the ancient way, this covenant succession, and you will have the fruit that you are hoping for for your children and your grandchildren. Okay? So tomorrow morning, Sam. What he's going to do is he's going to go much more in depth here in talking about faith and in, most importantly of all the promises that God has given to us as parents. So he's going to go, he's going to go deep in terms of promises. You're going to get blown away by all the promises that God has given to us and the kind of promises that God has given to us as his followers, as those in covenant with him towards our children. So I'm just going to simply direct your attention to the normative way that God intends to work out his promises of salvation to the people of God. He's going to go deeper in terms of those actual promises. So we can see it most clearly with God's covenant with Abraham. So I want to go back to Genesis chapter 17 uh, quickly here. John, Genesis chapter 17, and this is the, uh, the working out of the covenant with the covenant with Abraham. Now, uh, again, let me explain, the, 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 give you context, real quick context. So we have the, what we call the covenant of creation or covenant of works, which is before the fall, and there God is calling God's people, or <laughs> Adam and Eve, uh, he's calling these two to, there's certain things that they can do, like a whole bunch of things, and there's only really one thing they can't do. And so they blow it. And so at that moment in which God said that if you disobey, I will destroy you, you will die, rather than saying that to Adam and Eve, he he says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Rather, there's going to be one who's going to come who is going to be the serpent killer. And it's going to come through your children, your children, Adam and Eve, the serpent killer is going to come. And so good news, we should have died, but God said, no, no, you're not going to die. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, through your children, you having, you being fruitful, there's going to be a covenant, there's going to be, sorry, there's going to be a serpent killer who's going to come uh, and is going to save you from your sin or your sins. 
So, so we have Adam, and then we, we come down, and God, God gives more covenants, and the next covenant, he gives the way a covenant, and the next one I'm going to look at here is the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is just God is now saying, narrowing it down, this is going to come through a particular uh, family line, and it's the family line of uh, Abraham. So Genesis chapter 17, verses 6 through 7, he's, he makes a promise to Abraham. He calls Abraham, who is a, uh, as, uh, a, a, a moon worshiper, he calls him out of his moon worshiping, and, and, and surprise, uh, I'm the living God of the universe who made that moon that you're worshiping, Abraham. I'm calling you out. I'm calling you away from that. You repent from that. You come to me. And then he says, I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to bless the nations through your families. That's Genesis chapter 12. Uh, we come down to Genesis chapter uh, 17, and here's, here's what we read. Let's see, what did I say? Verses 6 and 7. Where are you, six and seven? Here we go. I will, he's talking, God is talking to Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you, and I will establish, look there, my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be, a, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So we see this is how God is going to, he's going to bring redemption to humanity and he's going to be doing it through these covenant relationships. And so what does he say there? Verse 7 again, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. So God is banking on his redemption of humanity through children, our offspring, through us doing something called covenant secession, through our offspring, after you, throughout their generation, throughout generations, for an everlasting covenant to God, to be God to you and to your offspring after, after you. And I will give to you your offspring after you the land of the sojourn and so forth. So you think you care about your children and your grandchildren? God 10,000 times more because it is through your children and your grandchildren that he is going to redeem the world. It is through the family. So that's really good news. I mean, I'm, I worry, right? You worry, you're anxious as a parent. Well, God is gracious and good. He, he, he cares much more than you do about your children and your grandchildren and about their faith and them living in, in faith, in your faith. That's, that's good news. He cares. All right, so, so this is how he, intends to, how, he intends to, how he intends to work. He gives Abraham, then this is what he does. He gives Abraham a sign and a seal of the covenant here in 17, chapter 17. The child is born into a covenant family. So the child is born into a covenant family and at age eight, circumcision is the sign of that reality that they are now in the covenant family. And it is a seal of that reality. So when this child has no ability to be able to make a choice, to be able to say yes or no, God says they're already part of the covenant family. They are in it. There's a sign, here's the sign, and here's the seal of the fact that they are part of the covenant family. So God's plan of redemption is to do this from generation to generation to generation to generation. This is the normative means God is banking on covenant succession. 
to occur. So when we have uh, parents who are baptizing their infants, this is what they're doing. They're, this is the sign and seal. Or we have parents who are dedicating themselves and their children to God. What are they saying? These children are in the covenant family. And God is going to work through this covenant, going to work through this covenant family. Now, 500 years later, look how it's being played out. So 500 years later, that's a long time, right? 500 years, long time, right? Yes, yes, it is. Yes. I said eight years old. I meant eight days. Really? Did I say years? Everybody else hear years or just him? I, you heard years? Oh, it's much more powerful when you say eight days. Man, it is really not very impressive at eight years. Eight days. Before the child can say yes or no, eight days. Thank you very much. Feel free to correct me along the way. So, how about 500 years? 500 years later, so God has been working for 500 years. Okay, 500 years later, Deuteronomy chapter 4, we're going to go there now, and we're going to see the same thing. So, most of us think 20, 30 years, you know, and we think what's new. And God says, well, what's new 500 years later is what's old, something ancient. So we're here in Deuteronomy, what's happening is, is that we've had one generation that's come out of, out of uh, Egypt. God has saved them. God has made a covenant with them. He's covenant relationship with these people. They have disobeyed God. And so as a result of disobeying God, they, they, they're not going to be able to go into the promised land. So we now are the cusp of them now going into the promised land. So it's Deuteronomy, which is Deuto, which is two, and anonymous, or anonymous is law. So this is second giving of the law. This is the second time of giving of the law in the sense of reminding them of the covenant relationship that God has with the people who are getting ready to go into the promised land. This is what Deuteronomy uh, is, is about. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, look at verse, uh, verse 9 then. Only take care, uh, uh, Moses is now commanding God's people, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of, of your life. Make them known to whom? Thank you to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before Yahweh, your God, that's a covenant name, your God at Horeb or Mount Sinai, Yahweh said to me, gather the people to me that I, that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. So this is what God intended for us to do with our children. All right? So... Again, I want you to note here that God's normative means is for covenant succession to occur through the family. And note also that God's vision is what? Multi-generational. Covenant succession is just not about your children. It's about our children's children. We must be thinking multi-generational because God is. All right, two chapters later, chapter 6, we go to verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land in which you are going to go over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God or Yahweh your God, you, and who else? 
and your son, who else? And your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So keep in mind, these statutes, he says they're going to be statutes and rules. These are the outworking of a covenantal relationship that Yahweh already has with them. So it's not like they're, they're trying to, okay, we'll do some really good things, God, and then you'll, you'll like us, right? No, God already says, I like you. Not because you're likable, but because I've chosen you, and I've chosen you to be in covenant relationship with you, and these are the statutes and rules that will help you to have blessing or to have a flourishing life as a result of this covenantal relationship that I have with you in the land that you are about to go into. Um, so down to verse 18. I don't know, if did I put 18 up there? 618? Oh, no verses? 618. So chapter 6, verse 18. Um, he says, You shall do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh, that it may go well with you. Because you know what? 618. That it may go well with you. Because you know what God wants for your life? He wants it to go well with you. That it will go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to your fathers. Now go down to verse 20. So when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord, Yahweh, brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and Yahweh showed signs and wonders, great, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear Yahweh our God, for our God always, that, that, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before Yahweh our God as he has commanded us. This is what we are to teach our children. And so, you hear, you hear me say Yahweh, 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 you know, that's a capital L-O-R-D. That's because that's the covenant name. So when they read it, they read, oh, yeah, the covenant God, the God that makes a covenant with me. All right. All right, let's go back. Uh, Exodus chapter 34. So one generation before, this is Exodus, we're going to see the negative. Again, just seeing how God relates to his people. Uh, look at Exodus 34, verses, verse 6. Exodus 34, verse 6. All right, Exodus 34, verse 6. So God's people, God's been good, good to them. God's given the Ten Commandments. God's, or God's giving them the Ten Commandments. Moses up on the, on the mountain. And, of course, what we know is that they get, they, Moses isn't gone for a long time and so long enough. And they said, let's make a, let's make a golden calf. That would be a good idea. So they worship a golden calf, sin. So God forgives. And when God says forgiveness, Moses is blown away. He says, what? what? What kind of God are you? So he says, show me your glory. This is what we're, we're catching up to where Moses says, wow, who are you, God? I thought I understood you, but I don't understand. Who are you? So show me your glory. Exodus 34, verse 6. So this is what God does. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, 
Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Thousands of what? Generations. Generations. The, the, this is who God is. He is going to keep, he's going to keep steadfast love for thousands. So he's got a, we've got a three-year, I mean, three-generation kind of concept. He's saying, oh, no, it's thousands. Thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So right here we see God's plan. His plan is a generational plan. He's thinking in the context of one generation after another generation after another generation up to a thousand generations, which we haven't even gotten even close in terms of human history to a thousand generations. So this is basically saying this is how it's going to happen. It's going to go and it's, it's forever, if you will. It's being passed from generation to generation. God's intention is to restore the world through the generations. Now, keep reading Exodus 34, verse 7. Because he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So here's the negative. So we need to be thinking not only of our children, but of our children's children. So it's possible that we can, because I fail to be faithful and trust in God's covenant secession, and I can affect not only my children, but my children's children. And we, many of us, are products of that, where we have received, come down, things that we wish were not true of our lives. And we're feeling the effects of curses, if you will, because of disobedience of our grandfathers, or maybe our parents, our fathers. We're receiving that, but God calls us out to break that. Break that through the gospel. So now we begin with our children and their children. So children's children, so three generations down or three generations affected by the gospel um, of what God has done for us. So now I, I, didn't, I don't have this on the screen, but I want, I want you to just hear Moses' response in verses uh, 8 and then God's response, uh, verses 8 and 9, and then God's response. So, then, so this, is what he, this is what God says to him. And so then Moses, when he hears this, he says, he quickly bows his head toward the earth and he worships and he says, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us because he knows his people. He knows himself and he knows the people he's leading for it is a stiff-necked people. So basically he's saying, if we're going to have hope in this plan, we need you to be Lord, Lord of our lives and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for our inheritance. So he recognizes it's got to be God sovereignly taking them out. So this is what God says to Moses. He says, behold, I'm making a covenant. Now he's already made a covenant with him, but now what he's saying is I'm, I'm going to work it out. I said I would be your loving, I would show steadfast loving kindness to you and forgive you of your sins. Now I'm going to work it out. Behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all earth or in any nation and all the people among whom you shall see the work of Yahweh for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So God is calling us. God is calling us and our families into a, he says, I'll do awesome things that I will do with you. So he's for you. He's for your families. He's for your parenting. He's for your grandparents. He's for your grandchildren. Because he wants to do awesome things through you. Not apart from you, but through you in your family. 
This is the confidence we have to be placing our faith in. It's not because uh, I said this or because somehow, you know, we're working ourselves up right now. It's because this is how God says he's going to do it. So we confidently are parenting our children in a particular way. So, um, so this is why, let, let me go one last one. New Testament, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Because I want you to just see one thing. And I, I think Sam will get a little bit more deeper tomorrow on this. But let me just show you one thing here. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, verses 38 and 39. Um, it's Pentecost. Uh, Peter's preaching a message about the crucified and risen Messiah. The people cry out and recognize, oh my goodness, we have, we have, we've crucified the Messiah. And they're convicted. And so they say, brothers... Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? This is what Peter says to them, verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you, and look who else it's for, and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So he says the promise is for you. Now it begs the question, what promise? What promise? Well, we could say it's a promise that uh, we find out earlier in his message about Joel. The prophet Joel said there's going to be certain things going to happen in the last days, this being the last days when, when Christ ascends. Uh, but it's more than that. Because it goes all the way back to the promise to, that God made to Abraham that we read in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. That's the promise. He says, the promise that I made to Abraham... That's your promise. That's your promise. That's good news for us. So if you've done that, you've repented, and you've placed faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he has a promise for you, and that is he says, now I'm going to work through you and your family in order to, re to bring redemption to your particular corner of the world, and your grandchildren, their particular corner of the world, this is the way I'm going to do it. I'm doing it through this covenant succession that I have set up from the beginning. So the first tool is rely on the ancient way, covenant succession. Okay. Second tool. How are we doing? What time are we supposed to be done? Seven. Oh, Lord, Lordy B. Second tool, regularly attend a covenant renewal corporate worship. So that's the next one. Regularly attend a covenant renewal corporate worship. Regularly attend a covenant renewal corporate worship. We are to attend with our children in the weekly covenant renewal corporate worship. So as soon as possible, we need to be teaching our children to know how to sit quietly in the gathering. Um, they are to participate in the weekly gathering. Now why? Well, it is a covenant renewal corporate worship of which the covenant, so, so what, we, what are we doing? We're, we're renewing the covenant every week of which they are to be part of because they are part of the covenant family. So we are to be intentional in our worship. And so here's our covenant renewal. So it, it, every week, you know, it, God hasn't broken his covenant or his, the promises of his covenant, but we have strayed away from its blessings. And so what do we do? God calls us on a Sunday morning, remember this? 
Huh? Remember, remember this? God calls us. Here's our liturgy. God calls us into worship of him. In light of this holiness, we're reminded of our sin. What do we do? We corporately confess. As, as a covenant members, we corporately confess. Then we're given the absolution. What do we do then? We rejoice and profess our faith. And then we listen to his renewed call on our lives through the preaching. And then we participate in his body and blood as a reminder of the means of our ongoing salvation. We are, then we are sent out as his covenant people to continue the work of restoration. So this is why we do what we do on a Sunday morning in terms of the gathering. This is a covenant renewal. We're, remind, we're renewing our covenant again with a God who never broke his covenant that week. And we did. In terms of the blessing, we, we received curses instead of blessings. Then God gives us forgiveness. And then what is it? It's corporate. It's corporate. So God intended a community of people to be doing that work of renewal every single week. Thus, virtual worship, as we discovered, is not a substitute for covenant succession. All right, what? I got it. Ooh, is that, is that good? Is that better, better good? Amen. Amen. Okay, there we go. I wasn't sure if that was. It's like, really? You don't think this? Okay, anyway. All right. Number three. We're already on number three. Wow, he's really moving past now. <laughs> Children. Children being instructed by their fathers. So that would be the third tool that we want to do is the children, we need, they need to be instructed primarily by their fathers. I know we have some single moms, and so moms, you will be stepping in, and of course moms will always be there as well, but I just want to say that God has made the family a particular way, and that is that men, we're it, we're the head, and God said the head is the ones who are to be leading out in terms of our uh, instructing our children. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with your, all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So notice first, the first thing here is, is this, and that is that we, uh, men, we need to have a life of integrity. Parents, we need to have a life of integrity. Life of integrity. What does he say? These words that I command you shall be on your heart. It starts with us. So our children know what we love and care about based upon the priorities that we are revealing to them in the daily interactions with them. In other words, what we love will be known by them. They're going to know it. So, so this is the battle of our own hearts. Look, uh, verse 5 again. What's he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. A life of integrity, live a life of integrity. Now listen to Psalm 101, verse 2. Psalm 101, verse 2 says this. I will ponder, the psalmist writes, I will ponder the way that is blameless. And then he asks the question, oh, when, you, well, when will you come to me? And then listen to this. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. Within my house. So what happens is our loves get disordered. And so God, he reorders our loves as we ponder the blameless way, and now in our side of the cross, the blameless way of Christ, who is our righteousness, and then what do we do? We set our lives on that blameless way ourselves. 
So it's important. I find it interesting. The psalmist says, I need to walk with integrity of heart within my house. Then, number two, under children being instructed by fathers, proper family devotions. Proper family devotions. Fathers are to teach their children diligently. We could, we, yeah. Call it, yeah, that's it, proper family devotions. There's two places, two really good times during the day at which this can occur. At the dinner table or right before bed and or right before the bed. So both wouldn't be bad. So for instance, you, your children, or, or maybe we need to start here. Eat at the dinner table at night, dinner at the table. This is the way you do life. By the grace of God, that's how my family did it. I had no clue that people didn't eat at the dinner table until I went to college and discovered other people, they didn't eat at the dinner table and I would go over to their, their homes. And it's like, what? Eat at the dinner table. That's a habit. It's a way your life should be, in, be structured, if you can. Most of us can. And then what do we do? We, we sit there and that's a time to instruct our children. And so we have another, this family worship it's called Family Worship Bible Guide, small little thing. It, you simply, what it is, it's, got a, it's got something for every single chapter in the Bible. So you read a portion, read the whole chapter. If your kid's old enough, read two verses. If your kids are younger, and you can open this up and say, read it. There's some questions here for every single chapter for you to think about. You could ask that question. You can have, see your children answer it. Now, obviously, it's going to be different if you only have infants. You're not going to be doing that. But you are going to be start sitting in time there where you are going to establish it between you and your wife. And you're going to be talking while your children are hearing that. And you're going to be reading a little bit of scripture. And you're going to be praying accordingly. And... Uh, the other thing to do is sing. Now, unfortunately, the only thing I know to sing, not unfortunately, but it's the only song I know, the doxology. So that's what we sang all the time, doxology, doxology, doxology. So that was, a, that was an easy song. So you can do that at the, at the dinner table or at bedtime. So I had the time, uh, three boys, uh, before we had Emily, um, three boys, uh, uh, cursed. It was a boy book. And I'd read two pages of the boy book, whatever that was, and I can't remember it all of a sudden. Mooney. Oh, well, anyway. Um, little Britches. Little Britches. And a whole series, there's six of them. So it goes on. We'd read that, loved it. They loved it. Then I would read a little bit of scripture to them. And then I would teach them to pray. Teach them to pray. Using the acts, so adoration. Let's praise God for something. Let's confess one sin today. Let's thank God for something. And let's, let's pray for somebody's supplication. So that's a, a way we can, we can do it. So use those, those opportunities. So that's the f- much formal. Now look at the other ones. We then, number three, use teachable moments. Use teachable moments, verses 7 through 9 of Deuteronomy 6. And here is the most powerful teachable moment that you have in your arsenal. And that is that when you sin against your wife in the presence of your children, you then repent, confess, and you ask her forgiveness in the presence of your your children. Do that. That is a great piece of your arsenal. You sin, sin against your wife, sin against your wife, and then ask for forgiveness. And then when you sin against your children, you do the same exact thing. You repent, you confess, and then you ask their forgiveness for being what you were. 
You do that, do that all the time, every time. No, no breaks, no breaks in that. I did that uh, four weeks ago, and um, my daughter's 18. <laughs> Um, I sinned against my wife. I, I used a tone that was inappropriate for me and with my wife. I, I, once God got a hold of me, and then I confessed that. I repented of that in front of her, confessed that in front of her, Emily and my wife. And then I asked my wife for forgiveness. My daughter has seen that over and over and over and over again in my life because I, have, I sin a lot. I sin a lot against my wife and my children. So you do it. So those are your teachable moments. That's a, that's a powerful teachable moment. And number four, uh, discipline your children. Number four, discipline your children. Tomorrow's second session will be all on this. Justin will be giving us some stuff with scripture. But when Paul, Paul writes, this is what he writes to the fathers in Ephesians 6, 4. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there are two ways that we can provoke our children to anger. One is we discipline out of anger with a loss of self-control and we do it harshly. That's one way we can get our children really angry. But probably more often, because Paul actually has to follow up with in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, probably more often we fail to discipline them with the instruction of the Lord. So your children, what they need is they, they, your children need to know the guardrails of life. They know this. And so what they are doing is they keep pushing out on those rails, desperately asking you to say, here's the guardrails. And if we aren't doing that for our children, we are only increasing their anger against us because this is the very thing that we are supposed to be doing. And so they get more and more angry and they keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And we're like, wow, these kids are crazy and out of control. It's because we never gave them earlier guardrails. And so we got to get those guardrails back in. They are looking for them. Stop I don't know where the sentence was going to go. Stop doing that. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Give them guardrails. Be in the positive. Give them guardrails. Um, another book out there is a Ted Tripp's book on um, training up the shepherding the child's heart. Shepherding child's heart. Um, shepherding child's heart. So that's a good book to be looking at. All right. Enough said of that. Tomorrow we'll get more children. Be or to be instructed by their fathers. Now, tool number four of covenant succession, and it's this, you see it right there, educating our children Christianly. Educating our children Christianly. Um, and we've said quite a bit of this in the past two years in our churches, but keep this in mind. Keep this in mind, okay? Um, education is not merely the passing on of information from one generation to the next generation. That is not what education is. Education is passing on love. The love of the hearts. So we could say, you could say, I'm in a good public school district where the schools are good. And they can show you scores. And you can say, wow, those are good scores. That's, that's awesome. Education is not just about information. Education is, and our public schools are doing a great job Everybody's in a good school district, public school district in this way. All of them are doing a great job of teaching your children what they ought to love. And it's not truth. It's not absolute truth. Our education system is set up properly. It is set up in such a way that we're passing on loves. 
That's what education's all about. Passing on what are our children supposed to love. There was a time when we lived in a culture which said, recognized that there is absolute truth, and that absolute truth, many times it was, they would say, yeah, it's in the Ten Commandments. Those are, those are great. And our public school system would say, yes, there's absolute truth, and look at these Ten Commandments. Let's, we, you know, we can all decide you know, if there's a God or not a God, but there's at least these Ten Commandments. Let's, let's stick with those because there is absolute truth. And so we had a society that was for what we believe is what they ought to love, which are good truths, good moral truths. Obviously, we would want them to love the Lord. Um, but we have moved away from that society, and we are now in a society that says that, oh, no, there is no absolute truth. Truth is found within yourself, and whatever you think is within yourself is true. That is what is true. And so now us, who are Christians, who say, oh, no, God is still reigning. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the one who's reigning this universe, and he's actually reigning in my life. He is the one who has given us absolute truth. You now are the enemy of the society. Christianity is the enemy because now we are going against the very thing that they say you ought to love, and that is that you ought to love yourself and the truth that you find within yourselves. And so this is why we need to be really thinking about how are we going to educate our children Christianly? Because we no longer have a society that wants to do that in the way that we would recognize as absolute truth is going to recognize that there is, there is a God or at least there is absolute, absolute truth. So what have we said? You either need to do homeschooling, you need to do private Christian school, or if you're going to do public school, then you really need to be pressing in on what it is that your children are not. It's not so much about what they're learning in terms of instruction, it's what they are learning to love. Because they're teaching your children to love something that is not true. So this is why number four is really important for us in our day and age.